We're up to chapter 8, well not quite chapter 8, the very last verse of uh, chapter 7, and you won't see it on the screen, but in most Bibles, including the NIV Pew Bibles, it says uh, at the head of this section that we're going to read, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John seven fifty three eight through 11 which kind of makes us uh, wonder or pause before going into it. Is this really God's Word? Um, and I contemplated doing, you know, I could, we could have talked about that for a while, uh, how the church has come to recognize the portion you know, what, that God's Word is true and so forth. Uh, we're not going to go into that. I could talk to you about it sometime if you have other questions. But the fact is, for centuries, the church as a whole has recognized this as God's Word. One thing that might be the case with this, in some early manuscripts, this section was found somewhere in the Gospel of Luke. And there are things about this that make you wonder if it sounds like Luke, because each gospel writer has its, his own approach. But there's also stuff in here that very much sounds like John. Um, so you'll see that as we go on. Uh, be assured, we're considering this as the church always has, as the inspired word of God. This is it. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, which kind of gives you a a visual there. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's God's word for us this morning. So John shares a a pretty fascinating scene with us. As our text starts, we read that while the people went to their homes, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and were reminded there how the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. The Bible says that. He had no home on this earth, really. He was one of us when he came to earth and assumed human flesh at Christmas, but also not one of us. While Jesus was fully man except for sin, John in his gospel often is pointing us to Jesus' divinity. And he's doing that here, even in this juxtaposition between the people went to their home, Jesus didn't go to a home, he went to the Mount of Olives, and he went there likely to pray. 
In situations like this in John, John rarely mentions, for some reason, that Jesus is praying when he's in solitude. He doesn't say that specifically. But we know from the other Gospels that usually that's what he's doing when he goes off alone, and John must be assuming that. And in that case, too, whenever we see that, which we do here, I think we should think, wow, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to go off often to pray, don't I need to do that? And the answer is, yes, you do, and so do I. Then in the morning, after this night of prayer, Jesus went to teach in the temple courts. Lots of people were listening. Just a wonderful scene of people sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his voice. But then the bad guys come in. They interrupt this scene. These are the people who have been out to get Jesus. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. These were two different groups. Sometimes someone could be a member of each group, but not always. The teachers of the law were sometimes called the scribes. They were like lawyers who were experts in practicing Jewish law. That was a career that you went on. Then the Pharisees were kind of like the religious conservative party of the day. They bring in a woman caught in adultery. And boys and girls who are here, I just want to take a moment to explain that word because it's kind of a big word. It's an adult word. It's from the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. Adultery is when a husband and wife do not love one another like they're supposed to. Adultery tells us, that commandment tells us that marriage is a very, very special thing to God. And he created marriage for special purposes, for friendship and for love. And God wants that relationship between a mom and a dad, between a husband and wife, to always stay very special and tender and dear. Well, this woman did something wrong, and they're bringing her before Jesus. There would have been a man who was part of this too, but somehow he's nowhere to be found. And what we find is that these men who bring her in don't really care so much about the woman and her sin. And we know that because John tells us so. He says in verse 6 that they brought her, they were using her to lay a trap for Jesus. They thought that they had Jesus now. They were always out to get him. They asked him, what shall we do with this woman? Now the Old Testament, with this type of sin, calls for death sentence as a punishment. And so, if Jesus doesn't agree with that, if he says you shouldn't kill her, well, then he'd be publicly denying what the Old Testament scriptures say, and they could call him out as a heretic. On the other hand, if he said, yes, stone her, like the law says, well, then all of those sinners who had become his friends probably wouldn't like him anymore. So, this was a win-win for them and a lose-lose situation for Jesus. Or so they thought. They thought the trap was airtight. Old Testament punishment for sin was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. 
But that was only if you missed Jesus in the Old Testament. And these guys missed Jesus. They missed the promise of his coming. God had a plan already back in Genesis 3.15, and that was to one day change how punishment for sin went. Without the promise of Jesus coming, it was harsh retaliation and harsh punishment. But through Jesus and the promise of his coming, God was going to bring grace into the equation. The possibility of forgiveness. Jesus coming, his going to the cross, would change how justice worked. Instead of payback, there could be grace. Instead of what we would call punitive justice, that's justice that's all punishment-oriented, there could be restorative justice. Justice with the view towards the future rather than the past. No more payback. They thought they had him trapped, but Jesus traps them. He bends down to write on the ground, almost like a quarterback writing a play in the dirt for a backyard game of football. People have speculated what he might have been writing By the way, this is the only example we have of Jesus writing anything in the Gospels. Some have said that he was writing out the secret sins of each one of those men who had brought the woman. Some say he was connecting with Jeremiah 17.3, where it talks about the idea of judgment as God writing on the earth. Or they think maybe he was bringing to mind God's law at Sinai where God's finger, we read, wrote the tablets of stone. Or, people say, it could have been a reference to the Roman courts where the judge first always wrote down the sentence before it was publicly announced. Some say he was just doodling either to gather time or to make them wait. We have no way of knowing. What we do know for sure is what he says. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he started writing again, or whatever he was doing. And then one by one they walk away. So what was this all about? I think that what Jesus was doing was exposing their motivation for punishment. And their motivation was all wrong. It was completely without grace. It, was, it had no interest in restoration. It was harsh. It was without love or care for the sinner. It was without Jesus and the promise of his coming that was embedded in the Old Testament from the beginning, and that they had chosen to miss. What the Pharisees and the scribes had was a Bible without the coming of Jesus. And that means that they had a graceless religion. They had a heartless faith. And so Jesus, I believe, was exposing the emptiness of their faith. 
And he trapped them, and they recognized it, and they walked away defeated. They didn't force Jesus to give the answer. And the reality is that we are all trapped without Jesus in the equation. When we look at justice and sin and being sinners, and we even look at crime and punishment in broader society, without Jesus... Like these scribes and Pharisees, we get stuck in a cycle of retribution. And then we remain in an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of world. And I believe we all have the tendency to do this, but we have to realize it's the old way. It's pre-cross. It's a world without Jesus coming. And it's living as if Jesus never came. And that's a terrible way to live. It's this old way that creates the situation, I believe, in the Middle East. It's a cycle of violence and payback. It's gone on for decades and centuries. It's because both Jews and Muslims have no cross. And it means they have no grace. They have no Jesus. It's this old way that has existed in the past in some very strict religious communities where a woman caught in this same sin was forced to wear a scarlet A on her clothing to mark her and her sin. Terrible in itself, but then even more than that, nothing like that was done for the man, creating a double standard for sexual sin that has so often existed in society and continues today. But that's the sort of thing that happens in a world without the grace of Jesus. And it's the old way that that we as Christians can dip into when, when we look at society sometimes and we see promiscuity, we see changing views of marriage, we see sin and crime, and then sometimes loudly, sometimes even gleefully, we call out the sinner and the sin, condemning them but then not doing much else, not looking to restoration, sometimes wanting punishment, and we're secretly happy about it. Well, those types of people are are just getting what they deserve after all. If you live that way, that's what's going to happen. Thankfully, I know better. I stay away from that sort of lifestyle. I'm not a sinner. At least, I'm not a sinner like those people are sinners. So, I think we have to ask, and a text like this makes us ask, where is the grace among the people of God in our society today? Do we miss the coming of Jesus in our view of sin, in our view of justice and what the response to sin might be? Are we missing the cross in this area? Are we missing the atonement that has reset the moral order that has saved us from the cycle of retribution, payback? Or is our attitude sometimes closer to the scribes and the Pharisees? In Jesus, shouldn't we be showing grace and seeking restoration for the sinner rather than condemnation? Even more than that, shouldn't we be considered 
friends of sinners, just like our Savior. We know from the Gospels that people who were sinners were drawn to Jesus. They hung around him. Are sinners drawn to you and to me, to Christians, to the church? Can we do better than shaking our head at sins and pointing our fingers at sinners? Does Jesus writing whatever he was writing and what he says call out us today? Does he call out you and your motivation too? In the Middle Ages church, you know, it became very much about punishment of the sinner excommunication, removing grace from the possibility of what the sinner could experience. And the Reformation sought to correct that deviation from God's Word. And in church discipline, the Reformers focused on restoration with the view to bringing sinners back to Jesus. And that was because they based their view of sin on the cross, and in the cross again. So in a church that knows Jesus and that wants to live out of his coming, when people stray or fall, we reach out. We seek to bring them back in love without spirits of condemnation. In a family that knows Jesus, parents don't punish children in anger, though We may get very angry sometimes. Let me make that clear. I get upset sometimes. But punishment for wrongdoing isn't done out of anger. Punishment in the home is always with a view to the future to help correct, to bring about positive change. In a rocky marriage with Jesus, grace can step in and break the cycle of years of resentment and harshness and payback that can happen in marriages. And even beyond that, and this this connects to uh, a sermon my dad preached, who's with Crossroad too, when people commit crimes in a society that comes after the cross and with the influence of Jesus and Christianity, we look for ways to rehabilitate justice may very well call for punishment. Punishment is needed, but restorative justice, restoration doesn't think locking someone away and throwing away the key is the answer. But it seeks to help people get back on track again. My point is, whenever we run into situations like this, when there are people like this woman who have sinned, who are guilty. And there are a lot of situations we run into like this. We read it online. We see it in the papers, out in society. And it's also sometimes closer home to us. May God then take away the spirit of condemnation and direct us to show mercy, to help to restore grace. And I believe this can and will only truly sink in 
when we realize that if there is only this payback cycle, you and I are stuck and trapped in it too. Because if there's only a cycle of retribution, there'd be no hope for you or me. Strict justice for us is everlasting punishment according to God's word. And if we insist on strict justice for others, we got to be insisting on it for ourselves. Thank the Lord that Jesus stepped in to save us from that through the cross. And thank the Lord that he applies the perfect work of Jesus to us by grace through faith. Jesus would go to death so that this poor woman wouldn't have to die and so that we wouldn't have to have the death penalty for sin either because that's what it comes down to. Strict payback, justice alone demands the death penalty for sin. Your sin, my sin too. The most beautiful part of this passage is when Jesus says to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. Wouldn't you agree? Can you imagine, can you imagine, first of all, being hauled in like she was? It says in the act, which sounds very dramatic, hauled in by all these men in front of Jesus in the temple courts. I, I'm sure she was shaking, terrified. She knew what these scribes and Pharisees could do, she knew the punishment. Then after all of this, the grace and the gentleness of Jesus, and he says, neither do I condemn you. This is also the saddest part of the passage because the Pharisees and the scribes could have experienced that grace too. But what do they do? They walk away one by one. The answer to a graceless way of life, the answer to their own sin was standing right in front of them. Jesus was right there, and they missed him. They didn't see the coming of Jesus and God's grace promised in the Old Testament, and they missed him when he was standing right in front of them. They walked away from Jesus. How about you and me this morning? Jesus says, neither do I condemn you to you and to me too today by the grace of God. Jesus is right there for us too. Will we walk away or will we run into his arms? He receives all who come to him. And you and I can enter this year with the mercy and the grace of Jesus with us. Will we do that? Will you do that? You can receive his grace, and we can live that grace, extending it to those closest to us and to everyone else in our society. And so the church has something amazing to give to our world. The cross of Jesus. It resets the moral order and how it's always been and how it still is in a lot of places. It bases Justice in grace. It brings us new possibilities for the future, even when our past has been a total failure. New possibilities for restoration. 
even if you've broken relationships. New commitment to Christ and his church, even if you've been unfaithful in your walk in the past. A new year of grace, even if the old year was crummy for you. And we may think that this insanely gracious spirit will encourage people to walk in their sin and continue in it. Because after all, Jesus forgives. We might think grace is too easy. It's, it's way too nice. Well, Jesus, the one who gives the grace and who invented it, he didn't think so. He said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. She gets off scot-free on the basis of the cross where Jesus was headed. And then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. He calls her to holiness. He forgives her free and clear, but that doesn't mean it's okay to continue to live in sin. The grace of God truly experienced will result in holy living. That's the way it works. Because we're not condemned, we want to live for Jesus. We want to be holy. And I know that's the case for you this morning if you're a child of God. In the end, we're either the Pharisees and the scribes in the story or we're the woman. There really aren't any other options. The Pharisees are those who condemn others and in their judgments completely miss that they themselves need the grace of God. They miss Jesus even when he's standing in front of them. The woman is a poor sinner. She's caught in the act. And that's all of us. We're guilty. We've done the deed. We deserve condemnation. But as Romans says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand in front of Jesus, forgiven, receiving his grace with new hope and a new life to live for him. And my prayer is that each one of us will experience in 2014 the wonderful grace of Jesus. That we'll learn more than ever what that means as we interact with others. And I think of other people from who knows where who walk into the doors of our church for the first time. I think of people we serve and we reach through our ministries. I think of how we look at fellow church members. I think of people we rub shoulders with at work. I think of our own loved ones. May we go with Jesus. May we go with the grace of Jesus and extend it and share it to others.